Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Welcome to the American Enterprise Institute. My name is uh, Stan Voiger. The event you have tuned into is our event on the politics of Islamophobia. I think this should be an interesting conversation. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Nazita Lajavardi, who's uh, an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Michigan State University. Uh, she is also the author of Outsiders at Home, The Politics of American Islamophobia, uh, published last year by Cambridge University Press. And we'll talk about the, the book in some detail. Uh, I'm also joined by my colleague, Daniel Cox, who is a resident scholar in polling and public opinion. Uh, here at AI, and he's also the director of the Survey Center on American Lives. Um, with that, uh, let me get started. I'm first going to uh, ask Nazita a few questions about her book, then we'll transition into conversation. With that, Nazita, can you tell me a little bit, what, what do we learn about uh, about representation of, of Muslims uh, fr from your book? What would, you, what would you say the main takeaways are on that on that front? Yeah, so thank you so much for this invitation. I'm really happy to, to be here and to share a little bit about, about my book. The book broadly asks, you know, one question, which is, what is the status of American Muslims in American democracy? And that is a pretty broad question. The way that we ask it can take a number of different forms. And one of the ways in which we can actually understand and answer or begin to answer that question is to look at the quality of political representation. And why might we be interested in political representation? Why, how might we define it? How might we measure it? Well, political scientists actually spent a lot of time thinking about these questions. So let me give you first a justification for why we should care about Muslim American political representation. One, democratically elected legislators are expected to represent the interests of their constituents and to advocate on their behalf. That's at the crux of our democracy. But there's also reason to believe that legislators may actually be failing to represent all of their constituents. And there's a great deal of scholarship out there that shows that there is a descriptive and substantive underrepresentation of different populations, particularly racial and ethnic minorities. But much of the research that's out there so far has actually looked at how racial and ethnic minorities in American politics um, might be underrepresented and has actually not focused as much on American Muslims. Um, so when we think about substantive representation, what do we mean? Substantive representation are the ways in which legislators can meet and address constituency requests. It's how legislators represent their interests, for instance, in roll call votes as well. And so to examine whether Muslim Americans are experiencing political representation substantively, in the book, I conduct two studies on all state legislators to examine how political elites treat Muslim constituents who contact their offices and ask for constituency requests in comparison to other groups, namely white men. And so the results, I argue, have implications for the prospects of the inclusion of US Muslims into the political process. In the first study, I test how Muslim Americans have access to politics by writing members, um, 
of, of different houses across the state, um, different senates um, and house bodies, asking for an application for a summer internship. And the person either signaled that they were Muslim with a uh, Muslim sounding last name and first name, or that they were a non-Muslim using a generically white name. And they also signaled education status. Either they were from Harvard, a recent Harvard grad or a recent community college grad. And they indicated that they were a constituent by saying that they resided in the state in which the legislator was um, elected. And there, essentially, I run this field experiment to test how legislators from a fictional constituent, either a Muslim or a white constituent with high or low education, who was asking for an internship in their political office, responded to that fictional constituent. And what I found was really interesting. So first I find that no matter what, and in the aggregate, the white alias gets a higher response rate than Muslims. And when I disaggregate the results by education, I find that education, low education does not hamper whites from getting access to politics, but high education does not help Muslims from getting access to politics or getting a response back. And then you might wonder how Republicans and Democrats might be treating Muslim versus white constituents differently. And there, you know, we might actually expect Democrats to be more responsive to Muslim constituents, but the results don't show this. The results show that both Democrats and Republicans discriminate against Muslims who are asking for um, a constituency service in this case. I run a second study in the book as well which looks at um, how uh, legislators treat either a pastor or an imam who's asking for a legislative visit in states with um, large Muslim populations. And there the story improves somewhat. There you see that when they do respond uh, to um, an imam or a pastor looking for a visit, um, Republicans are equally likely as Democrats to be offering a helpful response to them. So, the lesson learned about representation here is that context matters, that communities, the Muslim community is more likely to experience representation and have their um, interests heard when it's a leader that's approaching a political elite rather than merely a constituent. But I think it does in totality raise questions about whether average constituents, despite their socioeconomic status, um, are able to reach political elites. Something else you, you cover at some length in the book is the role the news media play in the sort of process of portrayal of, of, of Muslim Americans. And presumably that feeds into these representation, uh, into this representation issues. Can you talk a little bit about the, the news media uh, part of the book? Surely. Um, so the book, as I, as I said, answers this broad question of how do Muslim Americans fare in American democracy? Well, I'm sure many of you have heard that the news media is arguably a fourth branch of government, um, which obviously it's not, but um, is colloquially referred as such. And the news media is an important domain uh, that we should be exploring when we try to understand how groups are being represented to the mass public. The news media um, is important insofar as it conveys messages to the public. It has the ability to influence its opinions it fuels images, it gives disproportionate weight to certain stereotypes or tropes in its coverage and in its programming. Um, and as a result, um, we can think of the TV news, especially as being 
America's principal window into viewing events in the United States and across the world. And in so doing, the news media arguably has the opportunity to agenda set. Now, I might you know, be getting an audience here who says, well, haven't you heard of TikTok or Instagram or Facebook Live or Twitter? That's where the news media is. And to them, I say, I get it. We're a bit older than you. We understand. But for the most part, um, active, politically active Americans are still turning to the news media for their political information. In fact, um, Fox News experienced its highest ratings ever in the quarter after the 2016 election. And so arguably those who are still looking for political information are still turning to the news media. And so it is imperative for us to understand how different stigmatized groups are being conveyed and processed and fueled and portrayed to the mass public. And so the news media has two roles here, I argue. First, it has the opportunity to communicate how different groups are being portrayed to, to the public. And so we might try to understand what public um, impressions or stereotypes of a group might look like, but it also has the opinion to shape public opinion as well. It can actually affect public opinion as well, right? By giving disproportionate weight in certain stereotypes to the mass public. So here I argue the news media is doing two things. And in the book, I examine this question. I look at how has the US cable news media portrayed Muslim Americans in its coverage over time? And in doing so, I compare the coverage of Muslim Americans to that of other groups, which we know already from the literature that have been disproportionately treated and troped alongside a crime news script. And so here I'm talking about African-Americans and Latinos who the scholarship has long established have been portrayed negatively in the news media. And so what I did is um, as a graduate student, when I had a, <laughs> a lot of time and not a lot of money, I sat there and I downloaded the universe of cable news transcripts that aired from 1992 to 2016 from CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. And so I downloaded these 500 at a time. And um, that way I have the universe. I have the universe of anything that ever aired on these platforms. And from there, I subsetted um, the news coverage of African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Latinos, and then Muslims generally, or rather globally, I'll argue this in a second, and then Muslim Americans. So when the group is actually referred to as a Muslim American, thereby being in the United States. And I, I have different search terms to try to look for, for the different groups. And they put together what's called a corpus of text. And from there, essentially what I'm trying to do is assess two things. One, what is the volume of coverage of each of these groups over time? And two, what is the sentiment of coverage of these groups over time? So there's two inquiries here. One, how much information are we getting about these groups on these different platforms over time? And then two, when we are receiving images about them and news about them, is it positive or negative? So what I find is the proportion, when you look at the proportion of coverage that's dedicated to, to each of these groups, I find that in the post 9-11 era, and especially during the 2016 presidential campaign year, the foreign Muslim group um, appeared in a large proportion of news coverage um, across CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. On CNN and Fox, it was about 30% of news coverage in 2016, and on MSNBC, it rose to 40% of news coverage. And when you look at the sentiment of coverage, 
what's really remarkable is that the coverage of Muslim Americans um, in the United States, but also Muslims more generally, actually fell below that of other stigmatized groups in the United States. It fell below, it was more negative than the coverage of African-Americans, Latinos, and Asian-Americans, which is striking, right? Because we know that these groups already experience negative coverage. On top of that, all five groups that I examine experience more negative coverage than the average broadcast that aired on each of the networks. So this is not a uniquely Fox phenomenon. It translated as well on CNN and MSNBC. There, there's a couple of related questions I have about this, but also before we, we move on to the broader conversation, the, the last part of your book is about the impact of the sort of a climate of Islamophobia on Muslims themselves. And I wanted to, to, to ask if you could talk about that a little bit before we Certainly. delve into some of these topics a little more. Yeah, so the flip side of studying the landscape of um, how Muslims fare Islamophobia in the United States, instead of looking at it from um, the perspective of legislators or the perspective of the masses or the media is to go and study from the perspective of Muslims themselves. And the reason why the bulk of the book um, does the former and not the latter is because it's actually quite difficult to collect data on Muslim Americans. And it's difficult for a number of reasons. Um, historically, our surveillance practices have made it such that there's a lot of distrust among the US Muslim population when it comes to um, participating in um, surveys. Uh, there's also the fact that um, a lot of them are hard to reach. 58% of Muslims are immigrants. Um, and so oftentimes they're not uh, as accessible in the traditional ways in which, in the traditional um, panels in which we use to, to survey folks. So it's actually quite difficult to reach the American Muslim population. So we often at times have to rely on what we call convenience samples. But in the book, I do dedicate the last, the second to last chapter, um, the last substantive chapter to the experiences of US Muslims themselves. And here, I'm really looking at how Muslims view their own positioning within US society and how much discrimination they perceive. And so I turned to a survey of 200 US Muslims that I conducted in February, 2017 in the aftermath of the Muslim ban and then also the Muslim ban protests. Um, and essentially I look at two things, right? So one, what is the perception of US Muslims in terms of societal discrimination? Societal discrimination is the type of discrimination that people perceive in terms of whether or not they get dirty looks or they get unfair treatment, you know, at parks, um, or if they feel like people are verbal or verbally harassing them, for instance. So it's the type of day-to-day -day interactions that you have with other members of society um, and, and it's not about the government. It's about how other members of society are treating you. I also look at institutional discrimination. And this is the type of discrimination where um, you would experience through agents of the government. So this could be by the police, it could be by TSA, it could be by Customs and Border Protection, it could be by a number of agencies that are rooted in the government. Um, and that's the type of discrimination that we talk about when we talk about institutional discrimination. Um, Castro Uscuiz's 2016 work is foundational in developing these theories. And so really I'm building on, on his work. And what I find is that US Muslims perceive a great deal of societal discrimination, but this is particularly pronounced among those who are more religious and are more insulated in their social networks, meaning that most of their networks consist of other Muslims those folks are more likely to report experiencing societal discrimination. 
They also perceive slightly more institutional discrimination actually as a whole population. And again, this is more pronounced among those two same sets of populations. Later, I ask folks, um, in your own words, please describe what effects, if any, you think the recent immigration and visa ban has had on you or other Muslims in the United States. And mind you, there's 200 respondents. And I, in the book, I list 50 of the responses. And they vary quite a bit. And I think it's important um, at least to highlight some of the answers that I received. Um, folks said, uh, we want to defend ourselves and not get out of USA because of Donald Trump. Um, another person said, I might need to go back to my country. Someone said, I think it has everyone on edge. We're worried about traveling back and forth to our home countries to visit friends and family. Someone said, this attention has put a big spotlight on Muslims, especially from people who already didn't like us. Um, another person said it painted a bigger target on our backs. Um, another person said there will be extremely high number of racial crimes that will emerge. Another person said, makes us somehow apprehensive of our own future in this country. Other children in my kids' classes are asking them if they're going to be deported now that Trump has been elected. And I think the final one that really stuck with me is somebody said, it makes us more likely to die. And so I don't, I, I think it's important to end on that note. I think it's important to highlight that oftentimes, even though there was a massive backlash against the Muslim ban with protests that erupted in airports and at landmarks all over the country, people felt more visible um, and actually became much more scared, it sounds like, at least from these respondents. Um, who are willing to take the survey. And so, you know, in thinking about the current landscape, even when there are efforts to, to help Muslims, you know, they can have a backlash insofar as visibility um, can actually make them feel like they have to retreat even more. I see. Well, thank you. That, that's excellent. So I, the, the first thing I want to do more in this broader conversation is I, I want to take a step back and talk a little bit um, about some of the terminology and the demographics. So you You've talked about Muslim Americans, about Muslims more generally. Uh, one thing that you talk about quite a bit in the book, and I think Dan has done some work on this as well, is you know what are the what are the demographics of the Muslim American community? Uh, you know, from you know national origins. There's there's Sunni, there's Shia, there's Nation of Islam, there's African American Muslims. Um, I think Dan, you can talk maybe a bit about the socioeconomic. Uh, characteristics. What would you tell people who have no idea what the community looks like? What, what would you tell them about its composition? Sure. So I think it's important to, I'll start us off and then Dan can certainly <laughs> kick in with the, his expertise. Um, so just to kick us off, um, there are about 1.6 to 2.1 Muslims in the world globally. Uh, 1.6 to 2.1 billion. Uh, Muslims in the world globally. That means that Islam is the second largest religious group after Christianity. And it's also the fastest growing religion in the world today. Um, and the Muslim population is actually projected to grow by 35% in the next 20 years. And so this is a population that at least globally is going to be rising quite a bit. And in the United States, um, the best record that we have of the US Muslim population is put out by the Pew Research Center. They invest millions of dollars every few years to run a national sample of US Muslims using um, a telephone directory, a random like telephone dialing strategy where essentially they, they dial random digits and then they try to find a Muslim household. 
And that's how they're able to estimate the, the size of the Muslim population because we can't do so otherwise. Um, there is no religion category in the census. And then on top of that, the white category, which we might use to try to estimate at least the Middle Eastern portion of the Muslim population, um, it essentially hides any variation that we might have because anyone who is Middle Eastern or North African has to identify, self-identify as white on the census and also on employment forms and also in, you know, applying to school and, and what have you. So we don't actually know the true size of the Muslim population. The best estimate that we have is the Pew estimate. But I want to put this out there and have a cautionary tale, which is that that's the Pew estimate. Other estimates range from two to 12 million. And so that's a huge margin of error, right? Um, and so for those of us who are interested in trying to identify the population and trying to survey the population, learn more about them and their interests, it's actually quite difficult for us to do so. And so most of us scholars are relying on the Pew sampling strategy at 3.45 million as of 2017. And so what are the group, because well, if you get to 12 million, right? What, some groups have to be dramatically underrepresented in the Pew survey. So what would those groups be? What's the, what's the thinking there? The thinking is that, um, so that that estimate is actually the one that was used by the State Department, but it's actually been questioned quite a bit. And so I the see. way that they get at that number is that they locate the number of mosques across states, and then they try to estimate the number of adherents per mosque. And so that's how you get at that number. Um, but even the person who's like come up with that strategy has, has moved back and away from it and said, you know, let's just rely on the Pew estimate. But this is all to say, like, I'm all I'm trying to say right now is like, it's no, no, I understand. I drive at this number, right? Because sure, like that might actually be a really smart way of getting at that number. It's just that you have no idea who the adherents are or how big the congregation is, right? Yeah. Um, so just a quick couple of facts about the community. Um, only 24% of Muslims are US born with US born parents. So in fact, most Muslims, about 58% are immigrants who were born abroad. And only 18% of US Muslims are like me, um, born here, but parents were born abroad. Um, which means that we can't think much about the US Muslim population without thinking about migration and immigration policy. These two things cannot be divorced. Um, but there's also a great deal of racial diversity within the US Muslim population. Our US Muslim population vastly differs from the Muslim population in other Western democracies. Um, for example, in France or in Germany, right? Um, we don't have the same colonial histories that other countries in Western Europe have. And so our relationships with our Muslim population are not necessarily as tied to that colonial background. And so we're, we're getting different subsets of populations that are coming. And in fact, I would argue a much more diverse set of people who are coming to the United States. Um, but this complicates things, right? So one fifth of the American Muslim population is black. 41% identify as white. But again, as I said, that white category is honestly uninformative because it includes the MENA category. So we don't know how many are you know, Middle East or North African. Um, and then a majority of the immigrants who I said, right, the 58% of immigrants who were born abroad, a majority of these people, 56% of the 58%, they actually arrived in the United States in the year 2000 or later, making them recent arrivals into our country. So only 35% of foreign born Muslims arrived between 1970 and 1999. 
So just to try to wrap your head around this, like we're talking about an incredibly diverse and incredibly foreign born population. Um, and so as we might try to push them away and out of our electoral calculus, let me complicate matters just a little bit more. Of that 58% that are recent arrivals, 82% of them are US citizens and have voting power. And so this is an incredible, incredibly valuable voter base that at least in political science, we should be thinking about mattering in electoral contests because they do live in certain states that happen to be battleground states in national elections. Um, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about where folks were born, but Dan, I don't know if you want to chime in about socioeconomic dimensions. Yeah, so I really- I've been talking too much. <laughs> this book and I, um, it just, it, it inspired a lot of, of questions and queries that I had, some of which extends a little bit beyond this, this current research. So feel free, uh, Nizita, to sort of say, hey, you know, I'm getting to that, but not yet. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned is this idea of the kind of social context, the social networks of Muslims. There's, there was a recent uh, book published, I think last year called Steadfast Democrats that looked at this idea of linked fate among black Americans and the role like their, their unique social environment creates uh, an incentive structure and you know, particular constraints that uh, influence their approach to politics and, and specifically their attachment to the Democratic Party. And I was wondering you know, if in your work, uh, you've sort of seen something similar uh, in the American Muslim community, like how applicable is this idea of a, of a linked fate among Muslim Americans? You've named one of my favorite books from last year. So. Really good. <laughs> uh, it's such a good book. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So um, linked fate is essentially the idea that um, whatever happens to the racial or religious or identity group that you belong to, um, might affect your day-to-day -day life. And so we ask it typically on surveys, like, do you think what happens to X group will impact your day-to-day -day life? And that measure is really trying, it's really rooted in the history of African-Americans. So um, in Michael Dawson's 1994 book, Behind the Mule, he proffered this theory that the history of slavery amounted to such high experiences of discrimination that no matter any advances in socioeconomic status, for the most part, most African-Americans are willing to vote for the group rather than putting their self-interest ahead. And so that's where that theory comes from. It's, it's from that book. And it's been challenged here and there and it's been applied to different groups. And so we test linked fate among Latinos and we've tested it for Asian Americans and we've tested it for, for, other, for other marginalized communities. And the question is, have you tested it for Muslim Americans? And the answer is yes. But like for other groups, linked fate is not as strong for the Muslim community as it is for the African American community. And part of that is this history of discrimination is not nowhere near the history and impactful, nowhere near as, as a, that history for African Americans. And so let me, let me give a couple of examples why, and then let me argue against it and show you why it matters sometimes. <laughs> so one, as I mentioned, American Muslims are such a diverse group. Like they're so incredibly diverse. 30% of enslaved Africans who came to the United States were Muslim. 30% at the time of slavery were Muslim. 
and they were forcibly converted to Christianity. And even though remnants of their Islam still survives, like off the Georgia coast, for instance, that essentially was the first form of Islamophobia that manifested in this country that we can document and know about. So the earliest form of Islamophobia came with enslaved people, and then it's manifested differently. So as many of you know, um, naturalization was only available to free white men. And so what we saw in the late, eight, the late 1800s, early 1900s was groups of people who were not black arguing their whiteness to the courts in order to gain voting rights. And a lot of individuals from the Middle East were doing the same thing. They were also arguing their whiteness to the courts. And so what you saw eventually beginning in like the 1915s and whatnot with the Dow versus United States in 1915, for example, you see that the courts are perceiving and they're granting privileges of whiteness to folks who come from Persia, who come from Syria, who come from the Caucasus essentially, um, because they are so close to Europe that to deny them essentially would be, you know, would, would not be right. Um, in fact, for, for many of you who may not know that the Aryan race is oftentimes associated with that area of the world, the Middle Eastern area of the world, particularly um, like Iran, Persia, etc. So the courts were deciding who was seen as white, which also means that up until, you know, the 1970s, 1980s, where our foreign policy really begins to engage the Middle East much more directly, folks from the Middle East who were here and who happened to be Muslim were actually getting around pretty okay institutionally from discrimination. Um, they were able to vote, they were able to buy land, right? They were not denied the same um, rights as their African-American peers. And as you probably also know, right, there was a Nation of Islam movement that was really being um, led by African-Americans and so there was not a lot of solidarity building between um, different racial groups within the American Muslim population. They were not really connected or cohesive as a group, but they were not perceived as one either because they had such vastly different experiences under the law. To what, to um, what extent is that, Nazira, to what extent is that still, does that persist? Is it separate? Are, are, there, are the mosques racially separate in a way that you see in the South for Christian churches? It's changing. It's changing rapidly. So arguably, yes, like even in the 2000s, there was a lot more segregation, but this is changing. Right now, what's really remarkable about the, 12, the Pew 2017 survey is that 7% of American Muslims now identify as Hispanic or Latino. And so like at the mosques that you go to, now there are Quran classes in Spanish. Um, and so you're seeing much more of an intermingling, even among different faiths subgroups. So you're seeing mosques that are emerging that are not necessarily Sunni or Shia, um, but that are sort of open to all denominations. And so I think that especially in this the last 20 years, you've seen, you know, that 18% that I said were like me, right? This folks who were born to parents who immigrated, you see this generation that if they're going to engage at all with religion, they're going to do so in a way that doesn't have division and is much more inclusive and progressive on these, on these dimensions. And so you see a lot more mixing in these religious spaces. Um, sorry, Dan, this was a very long winded no, no, way of answering your linked fate question. And so the, the point being that linked fate 
was something that we would not have expected because the histories of discrimination among different subsets of the Muslim population have been very different. But arguably since 9-11, predominantly um, with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, with events like in Abu Ghraib, with um, obviously like <laughs> Iran being labeled the axis of evil, I mean, you name it, like CVE programs, national surveillance, the Patriot Act, et cetera, et cetera, you see much more of a cohesive Muslim identity that grows over time. Um, and then discrimination is being felt much more as a group as well, because we're being coded together as one group. So certainly linked fate is increasing in power, um, but it's more prevalent among certain subsets of the Muslim population. So uh, I have another quick follow-up if, if Stan will allow. Uh, you mentioned something that was really intriguing. So in the U.S. Christian context, we've seen the rise of non-denominational uh, affiliation. So people belonging instead of to, you know, Baptist or Episcopalian, um, there's, there's larger non-denominational churches. They're primarily evangelical. That's, that's I think, been the story of the last yeah. 20, 30 years. Uh, do you think we might see the same thing um, among the Muslim community where there's this shift towards sort of non-denominational Islam? Oh, can I squeeze in an audience question here that is very much along these lines? Uh, the question is, Judaism, similarly to Islam as a religion that has come to the U.S. and fundamentally changed to fit into U.S. society, notably breaking into sects that follow different proportions of the rules, reform versus orthodox versus conservative. Do you see Islam moving in a similar direction in the U.S. and what might that look like? Yes, that's exactly where my answer was going to go. So right. I really appreciate that question from the audience member. Um, yeah, absolutely. So right now on surveys, you're starting to see people when they ask you, do I, so first they'll ask like, which religious group do you identify as? That's typically how we figure out who identifies as Muslim or not. And then from there, they ask, um, you know, which sect do you uh, identify as? And they have like Sunni, Shia, Ismaili, Sufi. And then they also have just Muslim generally. And people are starting to select Muslim generally. And there's a generational divide. I wish I could give you exact numbers. Like if I had time to pull up the data real quick, I would do it. But I'm seeing it myself. It's in the surveys. It's how we're constructing our, our variables. A younger, more progressive group of people, that's how they are identifying themselves. And I think this is actually akin to American Jews. I think there's a lot of people who grew up with um, families who practiced from who immigrated to this country who practiced, but who want to keep the cultural parts of Islam but don't necessarily follow the day-to-day -day tenets, but that's the religious group that they identify with. And they, they live a life and they live up to values that I think are, um, that I think are more um, in line with the lives that they have in the United States. Um, and I think it's just a much more progressive secular type of Islam. You know, they're the types, if you can imagine like, you know, going to Passover and <laughs> fasting for Yom Kippur, it's, it's very similar, right? It's folks who, you know, show up for Eid and uh, do their Eid prayers with their families and have a nice brunch, but they don't necessarily fast for Mazan. They don't keep their prayers. They may drink alcohol, but abstain from pork. And so you're seeing kind of like a negotiation of Muslim identity. And I think what's really wonderful about this is that you're seeing much more of an alliance between like Muslim youth and like LGBTQIA plus organizations. You're seeing an empowerment of like Muslim queer people who are coming out and trying to um, sort of create space for these intersectional identities that perhaps would have been frowned upon by older generations. And so you're seeing very much that kind of secular 
um, practice of Islam that's more akin to what you see with American Jews um, over generations. I want to get to another part of, of that, right, where we talk about sort of generational changes among American uh, Muslims. And, you know, one of the things that's, that's really interesting to me, um, there was a this study by Pew where they actually created some uh, firsthand narrative accounts of American Muslims just to get a sense of like, you know, how you perceive a whole variety of different things, what are your experiences. And there was a really fascinating, these were like 30 second clips uh, of this young American Muslim woman who talks about the different way that, that she and, and her generation engage politically versus her parents' generation who are immigrants. She was, she was born here uh, in the US. And she says something along the lines of that, you know, her generation feels empowered and justified in trying to address uh, systemic problems and not just going along and getting along, whereas her parents' generation were much more of trying to sort of acquiesce and uh, be, you know, accommodating to, you know, American culture and systems as they existed. Um, and is that your sense? Uh, is that, you know, we, are we seeing this kind of generational difference in the approach to politics? Yeah, I mean, have you guys heard of Neda Mapula's book, um, The Limits of Whiteness? Mm -mm. I can't pitch that book highly enough. In her book, she, she finds a very similar thing. And so um, there she's looking at the Iranian American community, but I think the parallels here are, are striking and, and very similar. So it's important to highlight. I think what you see among most immigrant communities are the parents' generation, right? This first generation of immigrants who come over and who do everything they can to build and sustain a livelihood for their kids. And they want their kids to have opportunities to be able to thrive in society. And in doing so, there are certain norms that they're unaware of. Um, there are certain privileges that they don't feel are their own. Um, so feelings of patriotism or pride in national identity or even understanding the norms around these things takes time to learn, right? And it takes certain contexts where people are socialized into understanding what does it mean to be an American? You know, what is Thanksgiving? Is it just turkey or is there a story behind this? You know, what do you do on, you know, July 4th? Like, do you just watch fireworks or do you also have a barbecue? What's in the barbecue? Do we really like hot dogs or do we want to make our ethnic food, right? So there are certain things that and certain elements to culture that I think take time to learn and we have to become acultured into them. On the flip side, their kids have been educated in an American schooling system. They have friends who are also, you know, who they meet who have, who come from customs and cultures that are maybe diverse and from all over the world, but also they meet folks whose parents were born here. And so what that means is you have this generation, second generation um, kids who are born here, they actually are accultured, right? They know what it means to belong. They know what the customs are, right? I myself am, am an attorney. I took an oath to defend the constitution. I took that very proudly. That kind of belonging, that kind of um, stake in this country is something that you learn from a young, from your, from your early days, right? You learn as a young person. And that's not something that necessarily we might expect all immigrants to feel immediately or even to be able to teach to their kids. In the same vein, when you know what it feels like to belong, you also can observe when belonging is not happening, when exclusion is happening. You're hyper aware, right? So our generation of kids who came here, who went to elementary school, we know what it feels like when exclusion is happening. We know what it feels like when it manifests. And then on top of that, 
we're raised in a country where we're taught a pledge of allegiance where everybody is supposed to belong, even though our constitution has had its flaws. And even though the history of this country obviously has a lot of exclusionary elements, the crux of belonging, the crux that we are all here and that we all deserve respect and we are all American and that we're all entitled to rights and privileges. And we're, we're the same, you and I, because this is all of our homes and we can all participate and we can all uphold our democracy. That is something you learn by being socialized in our institutions that not necessarily immigrants are taught. But so when you're the kid of an immigrant, especially of, a, of like Muslim immigrants, and you observe what's happening to a community that is different than what you're expecting, you understand that that's exclusion. You understand that. And so you might sense it differently and you might feel entitled to it differently because you've been taught that, oh, this is for everybody. When in fact, it's not, right? In practice, it's not. This is a little a bit of a tenuous bridge to, to another audience question, but my question is, if this country is a melting pot for all immigrants, why isn't Islam or even Middle Eastern history taught in schools of every level of education since it's blatantly obvious most of the country is ignorant with regards to this topic? And now you were talking about schools. It's a tenuous link. So William Lancaster was a delegate to the North Carolina Convention in July 20th, 1788. And he said, but let us remember that we form a government for millions not yet in existence. I have not the art of divination. In the course of four or 500 years, I do not know how it will work. This is most certain, that Catholics may occupy that chair and Muslims may take it. I see nothing against it. I want to jump off of that if I, if I can. We know and it's been widely covered and widely reported, and there's a general, I think, public understanding that you know, the country is evolving rapidly in terms of the demographic makeup. You know, ra Racial, ethnic, religious background is, is changing. Youngest generations are among the most diverse the country's ever seen along those same lines. And I'm wondering if you have a sense of how that's going to impact uh, acceptance of, of Muslim Americans and, and experiences of discrimination. So, cause like, if you look at a lot of the public opinion polling, like Pew has, and we, we have our own questions that are similar. And we find there's a lot of support for like the principle of diversity. So like is the racial and ethnic and religious diversity of the US a strength or weakness? And almost everyone says it's a strength, right? This is a, this is a thing that's intrinsically good. Um, at the same time, we're seeing uh, this, this dramatic rise among whites that they are now a discriminated group, right? That, that discrimination against whites is now comparable to what we see among historically mar marginalized groups. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can get a sense of, of how that dynamic plays out, you know, how, how might this impact uh, how American Muslims are perceived and, and their experiences with discrimination? That's a really good question for all of us who study race um, in American politics. Certainly, you know, Ashley Jardina's book is among the first to show, you know, the importance of ra white racial identity and strength of white racial identity and politics. And I think that as more and more polls are showing that whites are reporting higher levels of discrimination against their own in-group, that we have to understand you know, what's, what kind of group threat is, is emerging, right? Because if you're feeling like your group is feeling, is experiencing more and more discrimination, like that doesn't go without consequence. That's not without consequence at all. I think that's an open question with respect to 
what happens with American Muslims. And I'll explain why. Up until the George Floyd protests, um, when you looked at uh, survey data um, at the weekly level or just um, in large national samples like every year, um, you saw that the most important support aside from partisanship and ideology was anti-Muslim animus. That was the most important predictor. However, um, with the George Floyd protest that changed, um, and I'm, I'm still waiting on new data to understand what the dynamics are in 2020, but my own um, exploration into the 2020 data has shown me that um, we've, we've re-entered a climate in which um, anti-Black animus is now the most salient um, outgroup prejudice that matters for shaping white electoral calculus. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's a question I don't want to take a hard stance on. I could just kind of tell you what I've seen in the data so far. Um, and I'm going to wait and before I take a firm stance on that um, uh, until <laughs> I, take, I can take a really firm stance on that um, until that data is released um, at the weekly level. But that's, that's what I've observed so far. And so much of outgroup prejudice is related to how you feel your own in-group is doing. So um, certainly there's a very high correlation. If I feel my group is um, doing pretty well, I'm gonna have less uh, outgroup prejudice, particularly among, among other groups. So um, I, I don't wanna sidestep that question, but I have a feeling the story is about to change very soon. And so I don't wanna say something definitive. And I suspect that it, it shifted around the George Floyd murder. More to come. Uh, yeah, uh, and I think there's there's absolutely hard question, Dan, uh, but very good one. There's there's a generational component to all this stuff too. I think, it, you know, in that if you look at questions about um, the importance of, of Christian heritage in the U.S. or Christian identity, right? There's there's just tremendous uh, generational divisions with older Americans saying yes, you know, the U.S. is or was in the past a Christian nation that Christian identity is an important part of being American. A majority of, of seniors, 65 and older, believe that. Uh, this, this new generation is sort of saying, no, not really, right? That it's doesn't, you know, Christian identity doesn't deserve the privileged place it, it's had. And I think that is really significant in, in impacting how you think about all these other groups, right? Who belong, yeah. who, who deserves to be American. The other piece of it, uh, which you sort of alluded to, is that in our own data, you know, we've done, we've done recent polling on conspiracies and political violence and the groups that um, seem most supportive of this idea of political violence are conservative Christians. And this is the same group that is most concerned about the sort of the pace and direction of social and demographic change in the US. Yeah. In fact, uh, in some of the models that we ran, that is a, a key predictor in, in support for political violence. So if you, if you um, believe that you know, if you have a lot of concern about discrimination against whites, that, you know, the, the country is changing really rapidly, you're much more inclined to support some type of, you know, non-democratic uh, action. And, and so I think that's really interesting. I mean, when this is, there's been yeah. some work in it, but in, in the current context there, I feel like there's a lot more work to be done. So there absolutely is, but can I, can I go back to your first point first? So um, in terms of, you know, the, the protection of, you know, a Christian nation. I think um, certainly, you know, it's it pops up in the data, 
But what's also really remarkable, and I kind of want to highlight to anyone who's listening, is that when we can um, when we can remind Americans, no matter their age group and no matter their partisan background, that the founding of this country was based on religious liberty, we actually have the ability to move people against and away from hostile immigration policies. And let me give you a firm example. So with the Muslim ban, when that was introduced as an executive order in January, 2017, what we saw in the data was that with the protests and the ensuing news coverage that took place, which painted the executive order as being anti-American and violating the fundamental principles of religious liberty, Americans, no matter their partisanship status and no matter their religious background, no matter their age or race, shifted at the individual level against the ban. And those attitudinal shifts against the ban persisted for up to a year later all because it was rooted in American identity and religious freedom. And so it's really important to note that while, you know, this is true, right? While, while these attitudes might be held among, you know, the elderly, among those who um, identify as more religious, as Christian, as, right, sort of in that demographic group, it is also possible to have an engaging conversation where we remind ourselves about the fundamental tenets of this country and about religious freedom, because it has, at least in the case of the Muslim ban, worked to reduce opposition to the policy. Um, and then with respect to, you know, electoral violence and, and what we see happening there, you know, um, I live in Michigan where it was a very trying summer um, to see your capital, your state capital, be overtaken by armed militia. It was also very trying to see that groups of folks were trying to kill your governor um, with bombs. And that had a really um, profound effect, I think, on, on folks who just never really thought that electoral violence would amass in the way that we saw on January 6th. And so, you know, I, I kind of want to put out there that support for, for electoral violence is still low. It's still low. It's important to remember that it's still low. Even folks who um, supported the protests, you know, at the Capitol on January 6th did not necessarily support the violence that ensued, but there are these differences. Um, but that the fact that we see support being heightened among certain subsets of the population, you know, where we see those differences, I think is, is cause for alarm. And I think heightens our need as a country to speak to each other and to return to having more civil discourse about our differences. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.